Hi, my name is Irfan Vafai. And I'm Molly Keck. And I'm Wizzy Brown. And we are with Texas A&M AgriLife Extension through the Department of Entomology. And this is Bugs by the Yard, where we hope to increase your enthusiasm about bugs in the urban landscape. Welcome back, everybody. Thanks for joining us again this week. We are going to be talking about a topic that I bet a lot of you kind of have on your mind right now. It's the time of year that our grass is getting greener, and we're really interested in making sure that our landscape looks really pretty, and our lawn is certainly a large part of our landscape. And this week, we are lucky enough to have a guest speaker with us, Dr. Becky Bowling, who is a turf specialist, and she'll tell us a little bit about herself. But she's going to be covering the top insects that most of us get our most questions about related to turf and what could be damaging that turf. And this is going to be a two-part series because there's just so much to cover. But this week we're covering the top two most common. And these are the top two, in my opinion, by far. And I bet you have probably heard about. Welcome, Becky. We really appreciate you being here. Thanks for joining us. Well, thank you. I'm excited to be here today. Absolutely. Tell us a little bit about yourself and kind of what you do for, you work with Texas A&M AgriLife Extension as well. Kind of what is your, what is your role and what is your background? Sure. So um, I currently am our extension specialist for urban water at the Dallas Center. Um, I've been in this position for about a year now. And so my position deals a lot with uh, water management in the urban landscape. And so now you're probably wondering, what are you doing on our entomology <laughs> podcast? I am wondering. I am wondering. <laughs> just, did we make a booking mistake here? Is this? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Prior to my current position, I served as our extension turf grass specialist for two years uh, in College Station, and I still do a lot of turf work um, in my new role, including working quite a bit still with pests, and in particular, integrated pest management. Um, where there's there's actually uh, usually a very strong water component that goes into influencing pest proliferation and the landscape and things like that. So um, still definitely falls under my my purview and it gives me a, an opportunity to work with some of my favorite entomologists in AgriLife. So I'm excited to be here and, and talk about some of our more common turf grass pests today. Yeah, and turf, I mean, that's a major part of the urban landscape. And, and that's why it really makes sense, too, when we're talking urban water, because there's a lot of water usage that goes on when we're talking about turf. But today, we really want to focus on some of the main pests. You know, there are probably dozens, if not more than hundreds of pests we could talk about that can occur on turf. But there's really some main ones, especially in Texas, that are problematic, that may actually require some intervention and or some, some preventative management. And so what are some of those main ones that, um, you know, are, are, are people in urban environments should watch out? Yeah, for? sure. So um, I've kind of identified around five pests for us to talk about. And then I also have some, we'll call them honorable mentions. Um, but, but lawns are kind of unique. You know, we have many different types of turf grass systems. We have golf courses, professional athletic fields, uh, parks and recreation systems, sod farms. And so lawns are just one system 
system um, in, in our big, uh, under our big turf umbrella. And um, they can present some unique uh, challenges sometimes as it relates to management, but they also tend to attract a smaller, I would say sometimes a smaller subset of pests compared to some of our really high input, high intensity turf grass systems, which is good for the homeowner. Um, you know, and like you mentioned, Erfan, we may get the occasional kind of rare uh, zebra instead of a horse whenever we're, we're hearing those mm -hmm. footsteps. Always surprising when you get a zebra. Yes. <laughs> so um, first one I want to talk about today is going to be grubs, uh, which is kind of my, my namesake, I guess. I, I do have a new married name and I, <laughs> I, I my new married name is Bowling, but a lot of times, uh, you know, people still know me as Becky grubs and grubs is great nice. if you work a lot in turf and so um, grubs are the larval form of scarab beetles and just a little bit of background here we have over 30,000 species of scarab beetles in the world and here in the state of Texas we may have as many as 470 species so um, there is some inconsistency in that reporting and, and I think part of that is also due to to the fact that um, just like with with many of our scientific uh, naming. Um, there's a lot of shifting. Sometimes insects get recategorized and, and things like that. But right. within those scarab beetles, we see a lot of diversity, right? So they can range significantly in size and appearance. Um, this group includes things like dung beetles, rhino beetles, Hercules beetles, Goliath beetles. So a lot of more interesting insects kind of fall into this category. Um, you know, in Egyptian culture, scarab beetles were considered to be sacred. And so there's a lot of history there. Um, but in the case of the turf grubs, uh, we're kind of talking about like the plain Jane cousins of some of these more interesting beetles. So, um, you know, grubs, uh, again, just going to be the larval form of, of these beetles. And in the case of turf systems, we're usually talking about the larval stage of two to three species um, where those grubs happen to be uh, feed on living vegetation and do damage to turf systems. And so, you know, many other cases, the, the grubs for some of these other beetles primarily feed on things like dung, mold, decaying plant material. We may often think of them That's as the being- goods. Yes, that's right. <laughs> we may may often think of them as being almost beneficial, you know, composters and, and recyclers in the natural environment. And this is something I really want to emphasize because every year I get people that they see grubs, uh, maybe a lot of times it's in the early spring, they'll come across very large grubs that may belong to some of these larger scarab beetles and their instinct is to just immediately squash and kill and spray insecticide because they think oh it's a grub therefore it's bad and and certainly we see that is not the case with the majority of grubs that we may come across in the landscape and so we don't want to be too impulsive there we want to recognize that again there's you know of the 400 plus species of scarab beetles here in Texas, we literally have like two or three species that really are going to produce uh, grubs that can harm our turf. Um, so those species are going to be uh, May or June beetles, uh, or I grew up calling them June bugs, um, as well as the southern mass chafer. Um, now we also see sometimes the green June beetle or Japanese uh, June beetle, I think, is another common name for it. Those grubs um, can sometimes be destructive in turf grass systems, but we don't typically see them as damaging here in Texas as maybe some other parts of the country. So usually we're talking about May, June beetles, and Southern mass chafer. So 
Um, first thing I want to talk about is kind of how do we identify these grubs when we suspect that we may be seeing them in the landscape. So um, I really love all of the descriptions that I found for some of these insects. Um, so, so here's one description I found. It says a gray, white, plump body <laughs> around one inch long. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Yes, yes. That's, you can use that to describe my body sometimes. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, and they are going to have these kind of brown, they almost look bronzy to me, uh, capsule-like heads. Um, they have six distinct legs that are in the upper portion of their body. Um, they may have some uh, kind of spots that run the length of their body. And a lot of times when we disturb them in their natural environment, they end up kind of curling into a C shape. Um, and so again, you know, it can be hard to distinguish across grubs. Um, there are some other things that, that we could add related to their, their bottoms. I'm not going to get into that today, but that's one way people distinguish <laughs> between different grubs. Um, we'll dedicate an entire episode on the bottoms of grubs. Yes. <laughs> so stay tuned on that one. Yeah. So, um, in terms of when we tend to see, uh, grub activity in a way that that is uh, problematic for our turf grass lawns. Um, so typically, and there is some variability here as Texas is a very large state, and we typically are going to see activity as a function of temperature and things like that. And so um, we will see some variability, particularly going north to south. Um, but a lot of times we'll see the adults appear typically in May or June, um, sometimes even early July in more northern parts of the state. Now, I actually have been seeing them earlier this year. I don't know if you guys have already been seeing them, but we've had a ton already, which I don't know if that's because of the, some of the winter weather we got or, or what, but it seems early to me. Have y'all, have y'all noticed them a little bit further, kind of like in the San Antonio, Austin area yet? Or? I haven't. And normally we do by now, like when you leave your porch lights on or your lights in the house, you can, we can hear them thumping on the window, but this year they're a little slow to come out. It seems like for yeah, whatever reason. I haven't quite noticed them yet either. Now I did release a bunch just outside of Becky's home. So that might be why you're seeing them. <laughs> to take this turf person. <laughs> so yeah, so it, you know, we'll tend to see them kind of uh, late spring, early summer. And, um, you know, as those adults come to the end of their, their active flying period, they're going to lay their eggs. And uh, that's when our, our grubs will come into being. And, um, you know, so these, these grubs, they go through three life stages or three instar stages. And um, each stage is going to be fatter and happier and more damaging than the one before it. And so by the time we get to that third instar stage, which is usually late in the summer, that's when we're typically going to see the worst of our turf grass damage because they're just feeding very heavily. Um, unfortunately, this is also the stage at which a lot of our control measures are less effective. You know, that uh, in, in general with many pests, you know, whether it's insects or weeds or whatever, um, the larger and more mature the pest, the harder it's going to be to control them, even with conventional chemical control methods. And so, um, you know, timing is really important to making sure that we have an effective program. So like, how can you know if you actually have them? And if you do, if it's going to warrant control later, you know, in order to prevent 
damage later in the season? I mean, is there like a certain threshold? Yes. Like you find one larva, you start panicking. What's the kind of the idea there? Yes, if you find one larva, you should actually just set your entire yard on fire and just walk away. Maybe sell the house. I don't yeah. know. No, I'm just kidding. Um, That's what I read in your publications. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, like that. so typically, um, in terms of damage, let's talk a little bit about what damage can look like in turf. So, uh, grub damage because of how they feed and where they feed. We're typically going to find them in the root zone area and the kind of the upper layers of soil. And what they tend to do is feed through there. And the way we can think of it is that are, they're essentially severing the connection between the, the above ground growth that we see in our lawn and those critical roots that the plant needs to take up water. So a lot of times when we're seeing grub damage, um, we may see a couple different things. We see some, some potentially primary symptoms of, of their activity and as well as kind of secondary symptoms. And so, um, so we may see uh, damage that looks similar to drought. Um, this can be kind of tricky here in Texas because a lot of times we're going to see intermittent effects of drought throughout the summer already. Um, and the other thing that we might see with, with grubs in particular is going to be damage from animals that are there to dig and disrupt our yard to get those grubs. And, and that can be a wide range of animals. Oh, yeah, so we, we see a lot of armadillos, uh, skunks, raccoons, possums. Um, so a lot of things that are kind of attracted to that. So if you're seeing something really actively dig up your yard, um, that, that can be a sign that those grubs are there as well. Now, what I can do if I'm trying to confirm that it's grub activity that I'm seeing and not drought is I can go up and I can do some tugging of the grass across that area because they're severing the grass from the roots. A lot of times I'll be able to pull up that affected grass fairly easily, either in clumps or sometimes even almost in sheets, like it's new sod. And this is going to be different from, from true drought damage because a lot of times the root system is going to remain intact on, on a system that's just experiencing drought damage. And so that's the first thing. And then as I peel that back, my threshold for treatment is typically going to be if I'm seeing five to 10 grubs per square foot uh, feeding in that area. Now, what I tend to tell people a couple different things. First, um, you may scout a little bit more heavily if you have areas that are under a street light, for example. So the adults can be drawn to those street lights, and we may see immediately under those lights um, in our yard or in that little annoying strip next to the sidewalk, we may see an increase in activity. Um, similarly, like Molly said, like maybe if you keep a porch light on overnight, that may attract some activity from the adults. And so those are areas where we can scout a little bit more. Um, there are ways for us to do preventative control for grubs. And so when we do talk about chemical treatments, um, insecticide treatments, we're typically uh, looking at doing those in June probably for, uh, for South Texas, um, and maybe late June to early July for North Texas. Um, again, we'll continue to see damage later, you know, as far um, into the summer as August, September. But by that time, a lot of times those grubs have reached that third instar stage and, and those insecticides are not going to be nearly as effective. And we don't want to put products out that aren't going to, aren't going to do the work that we want them to do because um, one, it wastes money and time, and two, we're increasing exposure of, of insecticides for, for those beneficial insects in our landscape. And so typically, um, you know, in terms of preventative control, if you don't have a history of seeing grubs in your yard, um, I wouldn't be worrying about preventative control. You know, this is something where if, if you have a year where you happen to see some, some pretty severe damage in your landscape, well, then you can kind of plan 
for maybe next year, I want to get a preventative treatment out during that June, July window. Um, and if you haven't seen that damage, I just wouldn't worry about it. You know, that's true for a lot of these insects that we don't want to be um, overly proactive to where we're using pesticides unnecessarily, despite having no real history or that threat of that, that problem in our yard. Like they're not going to devastate your lawn within a single season, as I understand it. Your, your lawn is likely to recover, you know, in the first year of potentially getting damage. And then from then on, you, you can look at how you can, how you can prevent that damage. Yes. Yeah. That's what I would say. I mean, we have some others that we're going to talk about today that can damage things much more quickly. Um, but in terms of grubs, I would say most of the time you're going to have a year, a grace period to kind of uh, adjust your program as you need to um, and, and make some plans for the next year. Um, so, so yeah, so that's, that's what I would say. And then I would say if, if you're thinking about doing treatments, a couple of other little tips that I wanted to mention. Um, so in particular with grubs, I mean, this is true for a lot of our insects, but in particular with grubs, it can be really important to irrigate both before and after making any insecticide treatment. Um, irrigating before helps to bring them closer to the surface and irrigating after will help to make sure that the product is moving where it needs to to be active. So typically the product label will be very explicit about how much you need to irrigate to do that, but that's something you want to pay close attention to. And you, and you probably can, I mean, is there a problem if you irrigate too much after? I mean, you're just kind of like washing away the insects. Yeah, so, or... you know, there are instances in which we may, we could potentially uh, wash something away. Like if we had uh, really heavy clay soil and a steep slope, we might end up with some excessive runoff. So we wanna make sure that we're trying to get that water into our lawn. And, and if we happen to have a real sandy soil, then overwatering means that it may leach past where the grubs are and go too deep into our soil. So that's why it's, it's really important to, usually the product label will say something like apply a quarter inch to a half inch of water or something like that. And so we just wanna pay really close attention to that. I was just gonna say that um, what I usually tell people is look at the size of the grub and the place where you found it. So if you're finding grubs in your garden or your compost or your just flower bed, it's not turf. So they're not feeding on that stuff. They're probably composting or they're predatory or they're something good. And then even if it's in your turf, but there are those big giant mamba jamba grubs, then that just indicates you have great organic soil, organic matter in your soil. So I usually say about half an inch curled up, you know, half an inch or smaller in your turf, maybe bad news bigger, the same size anywhere else. Don't worry about it. And mamba jamba is a technical term. That is a technical mamba jamba is uh, in entomology textbooks. I, I want to point out the elephant in the room. So you can collect grubs and clean out their digestive tract and fry them up. Just so yeah. I was thinking, I was thinking about yeah. that. You know, when Becky was talking about animals, digging them up to eat, I was like, you know, there could be some entomophagus yeah. humans that that would be involved in that. Yep, shrimp of the land. They are. I could tell that Airphone was actually salivating whenever I described them as plump <laughs> earlier. So <laughs> you got me hungry talking about these delicious grubs. Uh, I, if anyone's seen the movie Lion King, they know they are very edible and delicious. Akuna matata, baby. Akuna <laughs> matata. <laughs> All right. So I think that covers grub control, mechanical control. <laughs> so what do we, what do we got after grubs? You kind of talked about timing it properly. Like I right. have people who will call me in the fall and the winter and then early in the spring and say, well, I want to treat for grubs, but the timing is not right because you want them high right. up in the soil, which is summertime. Right. And then I was just also going to say that a lot of times the damage that you see now they've dug down deep. And so if you're trying to kill them, it just makes you feel good. You're not actually fixing anything. 
sometimes just wait it out and see what happens next year. Yeah. And that's, that's, yeah, that's especially important with these is that there's, there's kind of a two month window, I think, where treatment is appropriate throughout the state of Texas. And and that gets narrower as we talk about where we are in the state. And if we're either, you know, before that window or after that window, um, we're really not making a responsible application. And so, yeah, I completely agree with you that timing is really important. Um, and also making sure that you've, that you've properly identified that the treatment is necessary um, is also important as well. Erfan, um, our next insect is chinch bugs. Nice. Which are true bugs, which I always think is kind of insulting to all the other bugs. You know, it's <laughs> like, why do they get to be true bugs? But it took me a while to accept that as well. So I, I can't believe <laughs> And I just like, I like to talk about some of the other insects that, that fall into these orders. And so when we think about Hemiptera, that, that true bug group, mm-hmm. this also includes things like aphids, cicadas, um, as well as some of your favorites, like bed bugs, um, assassin bugs. And so I think there's uh, over 7,000 species in all that fall into this group. Oh, and Hemiptera, even more. I think it's, uh, there's like 3,000, over 3,000 just aphids. Wow. There's a... There's a lot of aphids are going to take over the world. <laughs> In terms of pinch bugs, we have uh, 20, at least 20 different blissus species that I'm aware of, around four of these that are commonly associated with turf damage. And so this is going to include, I always, to me, these sound like I don't know, Pokemon or something, but there's the southern chinch bug, which I imagine with a little cowboy hat. <laughs> there's the hairy chinch bug. There's the Western chinch bug. Maybe that's the one that should have a cowboy hat, but then I don't know what this other one could wear. And then we have the common chinch bug. And so those are the four chinch bugs that we will see commonly affect uh, turf grass systems. Now, um, most of the time, we're going to see these in terms of economic damage and visible damage. They're going to primarily affect St. Augustine grass lawns. Now, this doesn't mean that we don't still see them in other systems. I've seen them certainly in Bermuda grass systems and soja systems, but um, in terms of really visible damage, it's typically going to be St. Augustine. Um, and this is just something to keep in the back of your mind as well, that, that when you're shopping for new St. Augustine grass, we have some cultivars that are supposed to be more resistant to chinch bugs than some others. So an example of this would be Floritan St. Augustine. However, Dr. Merchant did some research uh, last year, year before, that he found that he didn't think it was quite as resistant as it, as it used to be. Maybe some of that... Um, hasn't, hasn't held up, but um, it is something that's worth kind of looking at when you're shopping. Um, now, something that's kind of consistent with this true bug group is that they have piercing sucking mouth parts typically. And so unlike some of the other insect pests we're talking about today, we're going to see that these uh, primarily do their damage by sucking basically sucking fluid out of the turf. So they're like little vampires uh, attacking the turf. And and during this feeding process, they essentially eject like a salivary excretion into the turf and that this also has an impact. It disrupts the movement of nutrients and water through through that turf grass's vascular system. So um, that's kind of how the damage uh, appears on the turf is is, is a function of that disruption. Um, And so... Chinch bugs are going to be pretty small. They are visible to the naked eye, but they're not going to be as easy to spot as some of these others. You kind of have to know what you're looking for. And they can be easily confused with other true bugs, especially as well as some small beetles. And so it's really important to make sure that you properly identify them before you do anything. At their smallest point, they may be as small as just like 0.2 millimeters in length. And the, the adults are typically about three to three and a half millimeters in length. So even at their 
their largest stage, they're pretty small and cute. Um, except when they're destroying your turf, I guess that's not very cute, but um, they're gonna have a little black body with white wings. And we're generally gonna find them in the thatch in turf, which is gonna be kind of that layer between the leaves and the roots. And so we may have to do a little bit of digging, especially when we get into the warmest parts of the day, they do kind of hunker down and hide in there. And um, there are ways for us to try to flush them out. Um, these are gonna reproduce rapidly. Uh, we may see as many as three to six generations per year here in Texas. There's some research done in North Carolina that found they may have seven to 10 overlapping generations within a growing season. Um, so a lot of rapid turnover with these that can make them difficult to control. Um, in terms of what their damage looks like, I would say these are seen most commonly mistaken for disease in turf. Um, they tend to kind of have an almost radially outwardly spreading pattern of damage that we might commonly associate with disease. We may see that um, more adjacent to concrete areas like driveways and sidewalks. Um, and, you know, it's something that um, we may also mistake for winter injury in the early parts of spring. So it, it can be easily mistaken, especially because unlike with some of our other insects, we may not see anything immediately um, that's that's really sh telling us that it's a, an insect issue. Do you normally see uh, chinch bug damage as early as the spring? Because I always think of them as like dog days of summer, like a heat loving, that's when they thrive. And so they do the most damage. So that's when their peak period of reproduction and activity is, is typically going to be midsummer. So I would say I've seen them most active between June and August, but I have seen them active um, at other parts of the year. I would say spring activity is going to be more common in years that we have mild winters. And so they're, they're not as, uh, their activity is not quite as suppressed as it might be, um, especially if there's like a, a very uh, robust infestation that's built up. But yeah, I would say most commonly see them uh, during those those dog days of summer for sure. And they, they like to hang out in the warm weather. I feel the same way about uh, some of the Bermuda grass, like uh, mites and stuff like that. They also similarly prefer the, the really warm weather. Um, so in terms of how we can spot them, sometimes when they are close to driveways and sidewalks, we will see them kind of meander onto the concrete, which will sometimes allow us to kind of flag that there's a problem there, especially if you can go out um, earlier in the morning or toward the evening when it's not quite as hot. Um, but probably most common method people use to identify them is going to be the good old coffee can test. So where we take a, an old fashioned coffee can that's open on both ends, we're going to insert it about three inches into the outer perimeter of that damaged area where we really expect them to still be active. You know, we, a lot of times right there in the center of that damage, they've already gotten all the goods, right? So they've kind of moved on. And so in that outer perimeter, and we just kind of flood that with water. Um, so much of, of identification is just torture, torturing things until they come to the surface. <laughs> nice. Waterboarding is okay when it goes to insects. That's basically what you're doing there. <laughs> you know, if we go through that process and we're seeing so the threshold for treatment for these is typically 20 to 25 chinch bugs per square foot. Or if you do this coffee can test and you're seeing five to 10 within that fairly small circumference of the coffee can, that's a probably good indication that you have a pretty severe infestation. And then another thing I wanted to mention about this one is one, in my experience, some of the insecticides that are available to the average Joe um, may not be as effective with this particular insect pest. 
Um, if you have a really severe chinch bug infestation, it may be a good case for professional assistance. Um, and because also what's what's commonly required is a, a sequential application um, because their, their turnover rate is so high. Um, so a lot of times you got to got to hit it more than once to really have effective results. The other big thing with chinch bugs from a cultural standpoint is that they really thrive um, when we let our thatch get out of hand in turf grass. And so again, this is kind of the, um, the intermingling of living and dead material between the leaves and the roots. And um, so when we take steps to um, to kind of control thatch um, in the way that we fertilize, mow, irrigate. There's also some cultural practices that we can implement like vertical mowing or vertical cutting um, to help remove and reduce thatch. That can be very beneficial as it relates to this particular insect pest. Um, it can also be beneficial in uh, reducing the likelihood of some of our diseases like large patch disease, which is also common, a common problem in St. Augustine grass. You kind of have dual motivations there for for doing that is there like an appropriate amount of thatch or thickness of thatch kind of what are people aiming for when it comes to for example saint augustine so i would say in saint augustine um you're looking at about a half an inch in thickness to maybe three quarters of an inch because it's such a tall coarse system but typically that the threshold i use is going to be about a half an inch in thickness what you really can can look for with this is does your turf grass feel really spongy under your feet when you go out and mow, are you feeling the mower kind of buck and kick over that turf system? Because again, it's kind of soft and spongy. Those can be signs that you have excessive batch buildup that would warrant a little bit of, of cultivation. That might not work for people that move down here from the north, though, because if you're thinking about like Kentucky bluegrass that I grew up with, it feels totally different than St. Augustine. And it was like really trippy moving from that turf to this turf because all St. Augustine, regardless of thatch, felt spongy until I got used to it. <laughs> yes, almost all Northern people are disappointed when they move down here that they cannot have Kentucky blue. <laughs> so I'm sorry. <laughs> I wish that we had could support it more here. You can have it some of the panhandle, but for those of you that are familiar with St. Augustine, you're familiar with kind of how it should feel. Um, you know, definitely if you're feeling that real spongy texture, um, whether it's St. Augustine Bermuda Zoysia, and that can be a sign you need to do some cultivation. Um, okay. Well, I don't know about you guys, but that really covers the two top main pests that I always get questions about when it's uh, in regards to lawn issues. Um, and that covered a lot of material. So next week or next time when we meet, we're going to cover the other pests that you might encounter in your landscape. And I think those are going to be some lepidopterans or some of the moths that can cause some issues. But we really appreciate you being with us, Becky, and going through those. And we can't wait to go over some of the other ones in a couple weeks. Thanks for having me, guys. So stay tuned, everybody, if you still haven't we still haven't talked about that pest that really bugs you in your lawn. We're bound to cover that in a couple of weeks. See everybody next time.